This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show, and Salut Babette, Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at 3CR, and to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we are heard from on Radio Skid Row in Sydney. We'd like to acknowledge their elders, past and present. Beyond Zero Emissions, as we will discuss tonight, very much understands that getting to zero emissions and then to draw down emissions, we must restore the land and respect Indigenous knowledge and practices. Tonight, around the world, the pandemic is still a danger, and in places it is compounded by events like Super Cyclone Ampan in India and Bangladesh. My heart goes out to those people. We've interviewed people in Bangladesh who have done so much to take in refugees, to house people, to have emergency systems. But these super cyclones, they're like our turbocharged fires. They're all accelerated by climate change, which we are fueling with our carbon emissions. To those people, our delays here in Australia on emergency climate action must seem cruel and inhumane. They do to me. Meanwhile, CSIRO reports that emissions have fallen dramatically since the lockdown. In Australia, a drop of 28% is attributed to the cars, buses, trucks and planes that are at a standstill. Have you seen the blue skies and enjoyed breathing again? I certainly have. So Beyond Zero Emissions transport plans with high-speed rail and electric vehicles, both of those drawing on renewable energy in the electricity grid, would make a rapid transition to zero carbon much more possible. And it's also a win-win. Local air pollution goes down and global emissions go down. We have positive alternatives in well-researched plans for every sector of the economy, and it's not just a techno fix. We'll talk tonight about the one million jobs that Beyond Zero Emissions is working on and the zero carbon communities that we are encouraging all around the country. It's as much about diversifying the economy and getting away from pure profit at any cost to build local expertise and confidence and it's as much about that as putting up more wind and solar plants. Heidi Lee is the business and industry lead at Beyond Zero Emissions and she'll talk about working with industry and manufacturing. Dr Heidi Edmonds is the Beyond Zero Emissions lead researcher on community investment and she'll tell us about fire ranges and water ranges and how to restore soil carbon. Imogen Job is the manager of Zero Carbon Communities Program with BZE and uh, she will introduce two of her local communities that uh, she's been encouraging, but she also helps over 50 communities ac across Australia to learn from each other about decarbonising. Following Imogen, we'll have Ursula Hogben in North Sydney, who has a team of professional people giving pro bono workshops to their local community to speed up the energy efficiency and take up of renewable energy. Michael Copsey in Melbourne, 
is a contrast to that. He's a more established, longer established group, and their Banyul Clean Energy Group now is consulting with people all over the state. He plays cricket, and he tells us how you don't necessarily have to talk about climate change to get people keen to go zero emissions. These are all practical people who, when the climate wars are over, will turn out to have been the ones to create the models governments will want to embrace. As Naomi Klein said on The Intercept, If there is one thing history teaches us, it's that moments of shock are profoundly volatile. We either lose a whole lot of ground or we win progressive victories that seemed impossible just a few weeks earlier. This is no time to lose our nerve. The future will be determined by whoever is willing to fight harder for the ideas they have lying around. And Beyond Zero Emissions has those ideas that are just lying around. I start by asking Dr. Heidi Edmonds about jobs in going beyond zero, that is, in carbon drawdown. Thank you, Vivian. I'm really excited that I've been able to um, hear about all these wonderful ideas for projects from communities across the continent. We've got uh, amazing ideas, especially in relation to drawing down carbon. I'm talking with a group later this afternoon uh, who are an Indigenous group of people who, the, who are managing the land in such a way that they reduce fires and they get carbon credits for this, which is a, a really exciting project I'm looking forward to hearing more about and we need to see more, about, more of. And we also hear about land ranges and there's some ideas bubbling up around uh, water ranges, indigenous land and water ranges and the way that they care for the land is very important for protecting our climate. I think there must be a lot of need for expertise in that, you know, people training more people in, for example, water ranges. I've interviewed a few people about rehydrating the land and do you think that's an opportunity for training? I think that we will see that training and education is an important part of the jobs that Beyond Zero Emissions will be uh, proposing uh, for our Million Jobs Plan. Certainly uh, taking the time to help Indigenous people connect with their culture and share their knowledge is going to be an important piece of of work that needs to be done as as well as honouring the wisdom that they already have for, for caring for their land. I And not only in relation to Indigenous communities, there's going to be a need for education across sectors to help us deliver the Million Jobs Plan. Mm. I'll go to Heidi Lee now. What do you uh, find, Heidi, in your daily contact with lots of people? I know you, you spoke at that summit. You seem to be meeting a lot of people in manufacturing and in communities, volunteers. Tell us a bit about that experience. Uh, I think I have the most exciting job going around at the moment. It's um, an incredible privilege to work for an organisation like Beyond Zero Visions and I think, Vivian, as you know, like we've met almost 10 years ago uh, when we both started volunteering at BZE. I feel like right now being a staff member at BZE and having the responsibility to enable and to empower our volunteer communities, including all of our pro bono companies that are providing consulting to us for questions that are really tricky, that they have data sets and pieces of technology to be able to help us answer some of these really complicated questions in speed that we, we can't with a Google spreadsheet. 
spreadsheet with our volunteer team, these incredible experts from across the country, pairing them up with mid-career professionals and with interns to create teams that can not just have the right answers to things, but most importantly, ask the right questions. Like we've just seen Australia, our economy, our lifestyle, like everything about our day-to-day has, has completely upended in the last few months. An organisation like Beyond Zero Emissions, we're, we're funded by philanthropy. We are powered by volunteers. There are so many, you know, kind of chances that we had to completely be destabilised by this. And instead, our, our staff team, our volunteer team, the community of organisations around us that we're, we're a part of that, that empower us to do the work we do, we have all pivoted. Mm. And we've been able to to focus in on what, what is the real opportunity in this, this turmoil, what is the real the real chance that we have right now that we we didn't have three months ago. I don't know if you know that this week, uh, where you're interviewing me on the 19th of May, that this week is National Volunteer Week. And this is, you know, such a cause for celebration for people who are part of the BZE community because it means so much to be a volunteer. So thank you, Vivian, and to the radio <laughs> team for volunteering for so many years to uh-huh. have this platform for outreach for us. And now... You know, it's never been more important that we we have um, the opportunity to talk about the research we do that shows how many jobs and how many opportunities there are to reset our economy and rebuild it in completely renewable energy, zero carbon, environmental justice and social justice address. Well, something I liked about what you said at the summit, it's a kind of narrative that there's this rich corporations that are just doing everything for profit and with pots of money in the back. And you said, no, manufacturing and energy, they can't just pivot like that. They can't suddenly electrify everything and go off gas and use industrial heat pumps just at the turn of a switch. You know, it's not easy. And you were so sympathetic. And I thought, that's an insider's view. And that's what BZE has always been. It's been a bit under the radar, but you do talk to engineers. And Matthew Wright took us to Spain and went up on the great solar array in Spain. I'll never forget that. And I think he took Roscano or somewhere over there, you know, because you can talk turkey with people who make things. And the average person is just thinking, oh, I've got no idea what an industrial heat pump is, like me. So could you just talk about some of those things? I mean, I've talked to you before and you practically glow when you talk about arc furnaces or something. I still don't know what they are. To glow in front of electric arc burners. I don't know if any of our listeners have been in the same space as an electric arc burners. It roars at you. It is is so intense. Well, look, I'm still at the stage I've got a heat pump at home. You know, I have got a heat pump, but I still do not really fathom it. Though many people have explained to me, I don't really get how it works. But you do. You talk about those things. So tell us. In manufacturing, you think there's going to be a lot of jobs in manufacturing. I can only at this stage think of, you know, face marks to prevent the pandemic getting to me. But how come we can't manufacture zillions of them in a, in a flash? But, you know, you're talking about industry doing this big transition. Let's not underestimate how big it is. The scope of it is huge. But you talk about that. So one of the most interesting things that we have held on to from our, our plans before the COVID shutdown was our engagement with industry through the Hunter region. We, we know that BZE have committed to um, doing a diversification plan for the Hunter, and I'm sure you'll be, you'll be hearing more about that in upcoming radio shows. But the opportunity to stay connected to the, the 
the heavy industry community there has remained. So last week I presented our outline of the Million Jobs Plan and the opportunities for heavy industry to the Australian industry group based in Newcastle, although we were all meeting on Zoom and from home. The Newcastle group got together and what we were talking about was the opportunity for stimulus spending to be able to leapfrog this idea that gas is a transition fuel, which we all know is completely flawed and based on false economics. What we can do now with the opportunity to invest in our manufacturing sector is to leapfrog that whole argument and say, well, we all know nobody is saying that anything will be gas fired in 2050. Nobody uh, is saying that at all. When we look at stimulus spending, we're actually looking at bringing forward inevitable spending anyway. So let's just skip the part in between here and there and actually use this reset moment to go straight to all electric, to go straight to all renewable. And the manufacturing sector is completely up for it. With the opportunity to actually do that capital investment, they know that they're going to have greater control over the temperature sets in their factories. They've got better safety because they've got less waste heat. You don't have giant gas furnaces just filling heat out everywhere. You're going to have a lot more control over the, the rate that your, your products are heating and cooling. And so I was meeting and talking uh, about the work that I've been doing with Mollycop in Newcastle around um, some of the Arena A-Lab uh, projects that we did. I'm also involved with some work that IEFA are doing. They're obviously, they've got some fantastic opportunities for the aluminium sector to be able to be powered by all electricity and therefore all renewables. What's happening though in the Hunter community is the opportunity to look at this as a whole region, like a renewable energy region. When you think Perhaps the aluminium smelter could be powered by electricity one day. You think perhaps the steel smelter would be powered, but what if they both were? What does that do to the way that we design and build our transmission networks, our renewable energy networks, our utility scale storage? That changes our understanding of what we actually need. And it also changes our opportunities for those high energy users who typically just been consumers of vast amounts of energy they can now integrate their production lines with the grid so that they can actually make revenue. They can make money out of turning off, not just by producing products. That's part of balancing the grid, balancing the demand and having a business that is like a, a good corporate citizen. Just wind down the factory on a really hot day so that everyone can have air conditioners on. Seeing this uh, report is called One Million Jobs, it sounds like pie in the sky. It sounds very ambitious, but... If you wanted to have 700% renewable energy eventually, this is the superpower idea that we've been playing with for several years now. Let's, let's be a superpower. Oh, no, no, no. But that, if you do that, what are the jobs? What's the jobs? That's how we sell it. I mean, jobs seems to be the currency in Australia, doesn't it? Wins elections, jobs. So a million jobs is definitely not pie in the sky. We're talking about a million jobs over the next five years. This is eminently doable. Some of those jobs are construction jobs. A lot of those jobs are ongoing. This is the same way that governments, that industry groups talk about job creation. And we really care about having good quality jobs and the right types of jobs that are available that actually build on the skills of Australia's workforce and are not about reskilling or de-skilling people to do things uh, just to keep them busy. We want Australians to be employed in productive industries 
in building and modernising our economy. The other area, we've talked a bit about the land and about the community participation, especially Indigenous community, about training, manufacturing. But the other area, Richard Dennis said at one of the the Australia Institute talks, he said, let's go for the low-hanging fruit. There are going to be billions here to, as you say, reset. And he said, go for things like retrofitting. Well, that's an old idea, but I noticed that France is going to retrofit 500,000 houses per year. And I'd like you to paint us a picture, or perhaps Heidi, either of you could paint us a picture of how this would work here. Would it be all government spending? How would you stimulate jobs in retrofitting, not just private houses, but buildings? So these days, building retrofits is a service. It's not something that you have to pay for independently. We look at energy services as a type of contract that lets the same organisation or the same person who funds the upgrade to then reap the rewards of the lower energy bills because we know that most of the energy used in our homes is for heating and cooling. We know that Australia has some of the least efficient buildings and homes in the world. Uh, We know that BZE did a report many years ago now, the buildings plan, where we looked at what would it take to retrofit every single building in the country and plug it into a renewable powered grid. And we found that that was modest cost and huge benefits. One of the reasons that it's so important to do this is that it is job intensive. It is fiddly work. It does take a lot of people and some expert training to be able to do it well. We need to make sure that there are opportunities now for Australia to have healthy, clean, efficient homes, as well as provide employment and upskilling opportunities for people who work in the building sector. I'm sort of worried the million jobs. There's the ideas at the national scale and then we're highlighting community examples. And so obviously that you could have funding from, you know, from the national government. Yeah. Uh, but there's also opportunity for funding from state and local government. Here to summarise the One Million Jobs Project is the CEO of Beyond Zero Emissions. His name is Eitan Lenko and I saw him last week on the four-hour-long school strike for students and he was being interviewed by a little person dressed as a penguin. I thought that was very disarming, but he's prepared to talk to everybody and this is part of his talk to the Smart Energy Conference, which is much more professional people, but a very big webinar, hundreds of professional and industry people there and his talk was very well received. Here's a small excerpt of that talk. uh, Beyond Zero Emissions has a Zero Carbon Communities Programme where we work with 50 local communities on their decarbonisation plans. So we've been able to go back out to those communities and talk to them about what are the small local projects that would get people employed and help them uh, overcome blockers on their decarbonisation journey. So what are the literal projects that people will be able to see in their local communities that will help them decarbonise and employ people? And by putting those together, It means we have a plan that's not just the big inspirational stuff, although that's fantastic, but is also tangible uh, for people and they'll be able to see what are the changes they'll they'll be able to have in their local communities. So this means that, um, you know, we'll we'll be able to generate a lot more social licence for the plan, communities will feel ownership of the plan, and we'll get a lot more buy-in. We've got a fantastic advisory panel that I won't dwell on, but suffice to say it covers... Um, you know, technical advice, strategic advice, and political advice as well. And obviously a million jobs plan needs to kind of add up to a a million jobs. So I'll go through these in a little bit more detail. 
Um, but, you know, this is where the numbers are sitting at the moment across all the different streams of the plan. Um, and those numbers are firming up at the moment as we cross-check them with various sources and various stakeholders. So, obviously, any plan that's, that's based on, you know, generating a large amount of uh, renewable energy needs to fast-track renewable energy, and we've heard a bit about that so far this morning. We know that there's already 130 gigawatts of projects in the pipeline in Australia at various stages of, of development, and we're proposing to fast-track 90 gigawatts, 90 gigawatts of those projects over the next five years. That's going to require the fast-tracking of new transmission projects. Uh, we're, we're suggesting 10 of those. AEMO have already confirmed that eight of those 10 are needed and are economic, and they're stuck in the process at the moment. So we just need to unlock that and move that process forward. Um, and as Lily D'Ambrosio was talking about, we'd expect that you would have uh, local manufacturing, local procurement um, requirements as part of those projects to encourage manufacturing jobs, particularly for things like wind turbines in Australia. So there's 100 to 150,000 jobs already just by doing that. We're also going bold on um, home and building retrofits. We're talking about 3 million zero energy bill home and commercial buildings. So after the retrofit, those homes no longer pay electricity or gas bills. We start with social housing, low-income homes, inefficient homes, schools and hospitals, and retrofit them at the rate of 500,000 buildings a year. And that's actually already the aim of France, who have put a similar project into place. So, you know, we're not talking about stuff that isn't happening anywhere else. And after the retrofit, those homes, the idea is they're disconnected from gas and they become net zero carbon. Uh, and obviously this area um, is something that we could get moving quickly and has the potential to create a huge number of jobs, 320 to 400,000 jobs. Beyond Zero Emissions have been, uh, you know, really engrossed in um, the idea of Australian manufacturing over the last few years, and we put out our electrifying industry plan uh, a couple of years ago. Australian manufacturing is, is, is inefficient at the moment and not competitive. It consumes more energy per dollar of output than any other developed country. And by, you know, so there's a lot of talk at the moment about, you know, getting gas and getting cheaper gas. But actually, the, the best way to make Australian manufacturing efficient is to fuel switch them completely to electricity. Basically, every industrial process that we have at the moment has an equivalent electrical process. But electri electricity isn't just about making things cheaper for industry. It allows us to make things in a smarter way. Electrical heating is more efficient, it's faster, it's more precise, it's modular, and it's scalable. It's digital, as I was talking about before. The problem is that an industrial heat pump, uh, which is the bulk, you know, supplies the bulk of that um, electrical process, um, they can pay for themselves between one to seven years, depending on the application. And we need to get that consistently down to less than two years to make that a no-brainer decision for manufacturers to invest in. So we're looking for a program that will achieve that. Aluminium, I'll just touch on quickly. We know it's on its knees in Australia at the moment. So we're looking for government to support the aluminium industry, underwriting them with cheap electricity from the renewable energy zones that will develop, um, but also to help them upgrade to become much more flexible um, and deal with demand response. Um, so by expanding Australian manufacturing, there's another 220,000 to 300,000 jobs. We know that recycling was in crisis in Australia, even before the, the coronavirus crisis. Um, and Australia needs a strong local recycling industry. So we're proposing to actually build that up. Recycling is actually extremely jobs rich. 
for every unit of waste that goes to landfill, if we can recycle it, there's three jobs in recycling for every job there is in landfill. So by building a recycling industry, obviously it's good because we can create jobs, but we also avoid the emissions from making virgin materials and the methane emissions from landfill. Finally, another trend that you'd be crazy to bet against is that of electrified transportation. Uh, we know that's going to happen over the next 20 years, and we, this is an opportunity to bring that forward. Um, bus electrification is the, is the biggest no-brainer of, of all of these programs. Australia is going to need 70,000 electric buses, um, and we're proposing to do that, to manufacture them locally in Australia, um, which would create 35,000 jobs. We'd also like a program to um, electrify diesel train lines and get started on the high-speed rail service you know, particularly between Melbourne and Sydney, which is the second busiest air route in the world. And of course, let's start rolling out um, our electric vehicle infrastructure. So pretty conservative estimate here that there'd be 50,000 to 100,000 jobs in this program. And finally, I, I spoke before about some of our community-led initiatives. We've identified over 100,000 jobs already in small community-led initiatives by speaking to our zero carbon communities and other stakeholders. Some of the obvious benefits for, for communities are local jobs and training, bill savings, improved air quality, community empowerment, and really importantly, options to keep young people in those communities. And some of the projects we'll be talking about are things like community energy hubs, microgrids, urban farms, biodiversity conservation, and training programs. So there's just a wealth of opportunity in these small-scale projects as well. Do you ever feel like just switching off? Well, don't. Switch on to Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Show every Monday at 5pm on 3CR and beat the doom and gloom to find out the latest actions and research in your community. BZE Radio at 5pm on Monday. Turn the tide, literally. Zero Carbon Communities is an initiative from Beyond Zero Emissions and Imogen Job is with us tonight to tell you how your community can get involved. Welcome Imogen. I'd like to check in with you first, like... How are you feeling locked down in this pandemic and yet connecting with places around Australia who want to get 100% of their energy supplied by renewables? I'm wondering, has the momentum stopped a bit? No, it hasn't. If anything, it's picked up, oh. which is quite interesting. We've had lots and lots of new communities joining up over the past few weeks. Communities from all around Australia who are looking to find local ways that can reduce emissions in their local area. First one was Byron Bay and then I worked with a few in Victoria, Benalla, Borbor and Nilambit. It's grown predominantly up the east coast but we've certainly got communities in most states and territories. So we really try and share information between communities. Well listeners might not really get this. They're, they're just alone with their house and they're thinking I could jolly well put in solar panels or I could put in a heat pump but it's probably a bit too hard and this is what we're here tonight to make it seem a bit easier. Later on in this evening we'll talk to Ursula and Michael to profile some of those groups, one in New South Wales and one in Victoria. And I want listeners to know that they don't have to reinvent the wheel and some people were just thinking they want to get a good advice about installing those things, heat pumps and solar panels because people will tell you horror stories and you know you want to get a good satisfaction out of the investment, but how can we connect with investors for bigger projects, you know, like a, a factory or a community council infrastructure? How could how can you, BZE, help them? There's a lot individuals can do at a household level to make their home more comfortable and 
run less energy. However, we are looking at a kind of community-wide scale for this kind of work and helping communities look at their local emissions, looking at the systemic things that they can do as a community to reduce emissions more quickly. So we provide support on knowing what your emissions are as a community to start with. So we have a tool called Snapshot, which you can plug in your postcode or council area and it will give you a, an indication of your community-wide emissions. So how do, you, how do you hold their hands as they go along? Because I looked up the um, Sydney area, you know, where my home is, and the snapshot of Sydney, well, it's a pretty big city. It's got nearly 5 million people. They only give the emissions from electricity and road transport. They don't do the land use or the air travel or all the other things. But I think about 47 million tonnes of equivalent of CO2 emissions. I wonder, say you were working with Sydney City Council or, or a community group in that city, how would you start? So there's the snapshot. That's what their emissions are. Where would you start then to say, well, what's the low-hanging fruit? How, where do you start? Start by talking to your council and finding out where they're at and if they're on board to think about reducing community emissions for their council area. We try and provide those resources that are of use to all communities and then they can go and tailor them to their own purpose. The cities are actually quite unusual because they're a different makeup to the rest of Australia and the city of Sydney for example is working really hard in this area. We, we work quite a lot with regional and rural communities which have a really different kind of process. One of the things that comes up, we're going to talk to Michael and Ursula a bit more at that local level but I hear this phrase behind the meter resources. I think it refers to solar, PV, electric vehicles and batteries behind the meter. There are a lot of benefits to the network of Australia if we have those people feeding into the network, aren't there? Can you expand a bit on that? What are the key things, say, that are, now let's go back to the household level or the small community level. What are those, the biggest bang for your buck that you can get in emissions reduction? As a household, if you can put solar on your roof, that's a great action to take. It will save you money. As a community, for example, working together to look at industrial emissions and supporting the businesses in your community to reduce emissions might be a bigger bang for your buck. And that can be putting solar on the roofs of the industries or the factories or the bakeries or whatever it happens to be. Or it could be through a, them working to set up a power which sources their energy from a wind farm or a solar farm somewhere else. And it could be looking at transport strategies to reduce emissions and dependence on transport. A really interesting outcome of this COVID situation is we've seen a complete change in the way people are communicating and the way people are working, which takes away that high dependence on requiring people to move to work. Tell me, do you like doing this work? What keeps you going at I it? I love it. It's such a privilege to get to meet and talk to people in communities all around the country who are passionate about people that they live and work with. They're passionate about their environment. They're passionate about supporting jobs and supporting community development and making sure that they they care about the place they live and they want to see it thrive. Undertaking this kind of work is a great way to help it happen. Oh, thank you. Well, that's a perfect segue into the two case studies we're going to do tonight. And then later on, I hope you'll get back to me with some other inspiring examples from the community. Thanks very much, Vivian. So that was Imogen Job. She's the coordinator of the uh, Zero Carbon Communities Project. I'm really glad she could speak to us today from locked down at home, but she looks pretty happy. Thank you, Imogen. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical community-owned media during our June Station Appeal. We'll be taking donations online to help keep the station going for another year. Like so many community organisations, 
We're feeling the impact of COVID-19 restrictions, and we know you are too. But independent community media is more important than ever, and we hope you can show your support with a donation. The 3CR station appeal starts on Monday, the 1st of June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. 3CR, here to stay. Right now, you might be in a community where bushfire has destroyed many houses and businesses. How can you rebuild? You might be dreading the economic slump which the pandemic will leave in its wake. How can you afford electricity bills? Or you might just be living in a drafty house as winter starts to make you dread those electricity bills and you have to turn on the heater. How can you use less electricity? So with us, I have two practical people, Ursula Hogman from Zero Emissions, Sydney North, and Michael Copsey from Melbourne, who is president of the Banyul Clean Energy Group. So let's check in first. Just tell us how you are both feeling at the moment while global emissions are taking a bit of a breather. Hi, Vivian. Thank you. I'm feeling very glad that people have the opportunity to see what life would be like if we had a cleaner air, less emissions, less waste. Obviously, deeply concerned about the economic effects on people, but I'm glad for the opportunity for us to see what things, what life would be like with a cleaner, healthier environment. Hi, Vivian. It's it's fantastic for the planet. We are seeing such a reduction in emissions. And I think in Turkey today, I, I saw that uh, a clip of you know sheep roaming um, the city streets there, and you know, nature taking over. I think the concern is you know the financial impact on people. But at the same time, there, there is an opportunity here you know, for us you know, via uh, renewables and with some help from state governments, in fact, governments at all levels, but to help people uh, not only save money, money off their, uh, their bills, um, but also you know, look to, to get into employment, which is something that hopefully we'll discuss uh, on the show, so the, the BZD one million jobs. Yes, for sure. Because I think most of us in this climate action world have never believed that something could happen so abruptly like this. And, and here we are ready, and you're the people who are ready. You've got the solutions, as does Beyond Zero Emissions. And I think it's great. It's our moment. So let's talk about it. Ursula, you and your team are working pro bono to connect people with uh, solar installers and all sorts of tips how to improve their movement to zero emissions. Tell us about your community education in Sydney's northern beaches suburb. So the the four of us co-founders, we're conscious that there is so much information available online. There's a lot of information about climate issues, climate change, and positive steps that not only that council and government could do, but also positive steps that individuals and businesses can do. But it still isn't necessarily feeling easy for people or translating to a lot of action. And so what we wanted to do was, first of all, what are the main sources of emissions in our area? Then what are the what are the changes needed? What are the barriers for people making those changes? And what can we do practically to help? So 50% of emissions in our area, North Shore, Northern Beaches, are from from electricity use. And so our first few programs are aimed at helping people switch to a renewable energy provider and to get solar. And that's solar for houses, solar for strata and solar for businesses. 
And what does that mean in practice? So as well as having great information about why on our website, we've got very clear information on how and who, what are the actual steps I need, who are some of the providers that I can go with, and we research those very carefully. And then we're also rolling out actual small group programs for people, ideally same street, same suburb, to give it a community feel where we actually have a workshop, we go through what are the steps, people ask all their questions, what do I need to know, what do I need to do, and being launched about six months and we're already seeing some quite significant positive effects of people actually making changes, um, including switching to renewable energy and getting solar. So we're really glad to see that. Well, when you have those community meetings, what are people most interested in doing? We wanted to focus on the significant changes that individuals and businesses could make. So 50% of our emissions in our area from solar, from power, then 30% are linked to transport. So at the moment, we've deliberately focused on renewable energy and solar. And then next, we're going to be looking at transport. Um, so the people come to us knowing that we'll be specifically talking about how do I switch to a renewable energy provider? How do I get solar? Should I get a battery or not? And why? What size system do I need, etc.? Also, heat. We're also looking at home energy efficiency. There are all kinds of other things people can do, but there's a lot of information about those. So we didn't really want to reinvent the wheel mm. when there's some absolutely brilliant work being done by other groups. For mm. example, One Million Women. Um, but we did want to try and make some positive change in our area. Fantastic. Well, Michael, after people have install, installed their solar panels, there's other things to do. What are people in your community doing to lower their consumption of electricity uh yeah so after after solar um it, th- there's a journey really there's a, an all-electric journey yeah heat heat pumped hot water systems uh heat pump based uh air conditioning systems that run in reverse cycle to also do heating so i'm getting asked a lot about those at the moment uh-huh. uh induction pit tops there, there are there are a whole you know a suite of renewable energy technology uh to to migrate to which ultimately lead to a position where you've got no bills you know which is something that i'm very very passionate about particularly at the moment but not forgetting of course the the importance of the the building envelope so um energy efficiency is is critical also like to highlight so we work a lot with residents who have been orphaned um, so what I mean by that is they've had solar installed, but it hasn't been installed correctly. Uh, they haven't even, you know, in some cases, been connected to the grid. We and you know, groups like ours have to help people uh, pick up the pieces there and you know, get their systems functional, but also build confidence back into solar. Yeah, well, I was fascinated by that, and Ursula's nodding her head. So this term of solar orphans, I've never heard of it. Just explain how... Uh, I think you said 100,000 people in Australia are solar orphans. How, how, how does that well, happen? Uh, so so I, I have a figure of, so it's at least 650,000 nationally. That, that is actually, that's probably very conservative. You know, not a week goes by at the moment where I don't get contacted by somebody new that is in, in that going outside of annual now. So I'm working with someone in, in country Victoria, you know, who's... Uh, had a, had a system installed that never um, operated opt- optimally and wasn't connected to the grid, um, which has resulted in them not getting the feed in time. I'm, 
I'm sort of worried that listeners might be put off by this because a lot of people think, oh, solar power, put it in the too hard basket, and they don't have community organisations like yours that are there to do meetings and to make it easier and to put you in touch. And people just think, oh, it's too hard, probably too expensive. And I heard this story of this guy who had a solar system that didn't work. If there's 600,000 people out there giving that sort of testimony, what sort of message are we giving? It's critical. And Ursula, I'm sure, could speak to, to, to this as well. It, you know, we have a role to play here. And solar is, you know, it's an investment. It's a 25-year investment. It should be, just like any other investment we make in our lives. You know, there, there is a lot involved. This brings us, Ursula, to something I noticed about your team. One of the projects is to install free solar on local charities or not-for-profits. Now, that is a really lovely idea. I wonder, you're quite a new group. Have you got started on doing that yet? And and where would the money come from for it? Uh, yeah, we're really glad that that's part of what we're doing. Uh, so, yes, we have... Our goal is to install rooftop solar on some of the residential charities in our area. So, for example, um, women's shelter, children in need, home type places. And the reason why, of course, is once they've got it, they've got 25 plus years of significantly lower power bills. And that means all of the money that's been going on those power bills can then go onto the core programs instead. So hopefully that's a really meaningful amount each year and over the life of the system. Where's the money coming from? We have an arrangement with a very well-researched installer in our area, and we have an arrangement with a renewable energy provider because they would all, they often pay commissions in their business anyway. The commissions that they would pay if they were going through another source, for example, those solar comparison sites have a, have a commission in them. Work comes through us or clients come through us. The commission that's payable goes partly to our operations and partly to our community giving fund, basically saving up to be able to install our first solar program. We'd actually love to make that a community program too. So to help fund a really good-sized solar system for the bigger establishments, we'll quite likely you know, reach out to the community council, et cetera, because we think it's the kind of thing that you know, many people might, might actually want to help sponsor get it installed. Yeah, and this is the opportunity. Do you remember the 2008 financial crisis and South Korea used their stimulus money to put it into renewable energy? And now I think they, they're ahead. And we, this, I think after COVID, we're going to have this sort of pot of money and you know, everyone's talking about the stimulus spending they're going to have to put in. Oh, look, it's an absolute triple win because mm. you're giving communities more renewable. So you you're helping the, that community's energy supply because, quite frankly, across Australia now, there are power disruptions and energy issues. In our area, there's considerable when we're in the city area. So you're helping people's energy supply. You're, you're significantly reducing emissions and you're creating local jobs and hopefully that becomes a positive cycle where the more we transition, the more and more new green renewable jobs there are. Many of you will be familiar with 3CR's annual Radiothon fundraiser. It's when you, our listeners, literally keep the station going with your generous donations. It's a vibrant and busy time each June at the station and an all-in effort from our volunteers, staff and supporters. But in 2020, under the COVID-19 restrictions, we need to do things a little bit differently. So stay tuned for our June Station Appeal. It'll be online, on point, and be asking those of you who can to make a donation to keep 3CR alive. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity.
Well, Michael, I'd like to uh, come back to something, to a bigger picture with you. I noticed on your Facebook some, you know, quite interesting posts there. And I'd like to know, how do you get political people engaged? You know, state government, local councils and federal government. How do you engage their minds with what you're doing and what is your bigger vision for driving this energy transition? Because, you know, you're working outside now, your annual group, as you said, there's an Australian need for this transition. We're not talking about the exported emissions that we're responsible for, we're just our own, you know, Australians have the huge carbon footprint in the world. We should be getting it down. We're very high on carbon footprints. So how do you engage the political people? Yeah, I mean, you know, um, in two words, financial benefits. So when we first established the Banyan Clean Energy Group, we worked with what was a, you know, uh, a borderline hostile capture to climate change. What we learnt was, yeah, that financial benefits is, is still the driver. When it comes to making decisions, it is those financial benefits that drive them. So we... Yeah, sought to unify a council by helping to build a climate action package based on financial benefits. So based on you know, savings that can be made by deploying solar on council facilities you know, to save on energy bills, but also by you know, getting getting rid of carbon offsets. So with Banyul, there was nigh on half a million dollars put into carbon offsets every year. And so what we proposed was to create a green jobs fund where that money could be put directly into jobs for the underemployed or for communities that find, find it difficult to get employment and that you know has been going extremely well yeah i mean with certainly with with Banyan council it was the, the the financial benefits which helped to unify councillors and staff you know there's been a renaissance at Banyan city council could i just uh, tell the melbourne listeners just to situate them it used to be tony abbott's electorate sydney people all know this uh, <laughs> yes. swept away by Zali Stegel, who's an independent, and she's now in federal parliament. And I think one of the key points on her platform was definitely the climate emergency. She I heard her talk about it quite a lot. You know, what does your advocacy work up there do? How do you get people involved in championing the zero emissions idea at that political level? Zali talks about it all the time, and it's a big battle. And how do you get people mm-hmm. engaged? In our area, North Shore and Northern Beaches, we have at least two different councils, which are, you know, councillors are basically independent of political parties. Uh, we have state reps who both happen to be of one party. We have a federal member who's independent and, you know, who has been a leading voice in federal parliament on climate action, including leading the climate change, creating and leading the climate change bill proposal. Now, Zero Emissions Sydney North personally isn't politically related at all and we are delighted to work with independents and people of any parties. And like Michael said, we are very practically focused. So how is an initiative going to support jobs? How is an initiative going to support innovation? How is it going to support businesses? That's the win-win for renewable energy for Australia right now, is that we're creating jobs, we're helping the economy, and we are helping the environment. And that matters nationally and locally. So for example, we were working with the councils and they and we working with the local TAFE. There's, There's a genuine shortage of qualified installers, for example. So more installations are in the area. TAFE could do some qualifications around that, create local jobs and even attract people from other areas coming into the area for education. There's other things we could be doing in terms of innovation. As, as Michael well knows, in terms of there's only one solar panel manufacturer in Australia that could expand. There could be more. There's battery technology. There's other technology. And, and these are just some of the 
many, many ideas. All politicians on the whole are interested in some parts of the economy, local jobs and the local environment. We're science-based, we're factual and we're very happy to work with any groups and politicians who have those same principles. Thank you very much. I think, listeners, that will be that's going to give a lot of us a kickstart to maybe getting more of these groups. 50 Beyond Zero Emissions is working with and a lot more could get this enthusiastic group. But I know you both work very hard. It's a huge commitment. Thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you very much, Vivian. I think uh, I was listening to a climate psychologist and she said people people's perception is that there is less climate action going on in Australia than there is. Yes. And so the more we can we can show what is actually happening, the more we inspire other people. That is totally um, my so, attitude to doing this program mm-hmm. because people keep saying yeah. nobody's doing anything, and I keep bringing all these voices of community yeah. people who are doing yeah. fantastic things. Yeah. Last Monday's program, if you like to listen to it, was in Canberra with all these people on the lawns of Canberra on the first day of Parliament, and really there's so many of them, you know, all yeah. different sectors yeah. working on aspects of this. Yeah. it's great. Thank you very yeah, much. And, and it was really important to, to hear that because it's changed even what, you know, I do our social media and I'm making sure there is a lot more posts about what are people actually doing, what are people actually doing to inspire yeah. others. Well, connect them to that um, uh, podcast last moment. I will. Thank you very actually, much. There's one, there was one point actually that I, I didn't talk about that maybe is something for another time. So it's, I guess it's, it's those discussions at places like the cricket club and, yes. um, you know, places where a lot of people congregate, but, you know, climate change is the last thing, you know, on, on the agenda. And it's, it's being that kind of change creator. It's throwing those things into conversations that get people thinking. What do you throw yeah, into the conversation down at the cricket club? Well, yeah. So, I mean, at the cricket club, yeah, it's, it's, um, yeah, being mindful of the context. So, you know, you might, might be at the nets, you know, having a bowl or a bat you know, with a group of people and, you know, start talking about, well, you know, I had a solar array installed recently. It cost me $5,500, but gosh, it's saving me 1500 a year off my energy bills. Um, <laughs> and, you know, just letting that sit for a while. Um, and, I mean, that that's something that I've actually done. And, you know, what happened in that case was someone approached me afterwards one-on-one because, you know, said, did, did you mean what you said about um, <laughs> solar panels, Mike? I was like, yeah. Yeah, it's really great. You know, we're planning to add another array at some point. Um, you know, I'm working towards zero energy bills. Yeah, they're going from a position of, you know, not considering solar at all to, well, how do I get involved? Can you send me some information? And, you know, and that's, um, you know, that's how the journey starts. And, you know, with, once you're on solar, then, you know, your, your hot water breaks down and then you think, yes. okay, well, what, I was going to get a gas one, but, you know, uh, yeah. Michael was talking about a uh, heat pump based hot water system. Well, that probably yeah. makes more sense. You know, I've got solar in. And so, so did them. Yeah. You know, so it's that that it's the, those conversations really are more and more mindful of. You know, on on the on the drop off. You know, with the kids at school, with you know the the dad who drives the V8, or you know, it's kind of but in a, in a in a non-combative way. It's kind of yeah. You know, gosh, that's it's a fantastic not political. Yeah, yep, it's yeah, not it's yeah. not greeny. Yep, yep. We we're quite a kind of tech and um, economics-based area as well, particularly in Mossman, and, and I completely agree with Michael. It's it's non-political, it's non-greeny, it's also a, a gateway. Once people start looking at their bills, then they think about lowering consumption, then they think about what else could be electric. But 
if you tried to start the conversation another way, like you've got to rip out all your gas and halve your consumption, you just don't get anywhere. You put people offside. Rooftop solar is, is we're seeing it. It's, it's people's pathway to becoming a lot more environmentally aware without them realising that, that that's going to happen. Positive gateway. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was my gateway. I put the solar panels on about yeah. 20 years ago and, and then I started nice. reading about climate change and then I started think of this is what do I do after the panels what next you know yeah yeah and you can get I mean you know we have in in Mossman particularly it's you know it's a room full of men in suits with their calculators just wanting to know you know uh, STCs and returns etc but it's fine like even if it's purely economic that's fine but we also know time and again it becomes something else thanks both of you great to speak with you both bye-bye see you again you've been listening to the beyond zero emissions community show My name is Vivian Langford, and thank you to Andy Britt, Michaela Stubbs, and Raul Hernandez, who are getting this show to air in Melbourne and Sydney. The guests tonight were Beyond Zero Emissions staff, Heidi Edmonds, Heidi Lee, and Imogen Jubb, and Zero Carbon community leaders, Ursula Hogben in Sydney and Michael Copsey in Melbourne. Thanks also to Imogen Butler, who helped me get it all organised. Links to ways you can help going to zero will be found in our podcast at Beyond Zero Emissions Podcast. You look up BZE Podcasts on the 3CR website. For climate action this week, you could join the Zero Carbon Communities Register. Individuals or groups taking steps to lower their emissions. I don't think you need to be alone. They will send you a newsletter and just joining up will give you, uh, make you part of a much bigger network. I've received calls for action also from Lock the Gate Alliance, who are defending our land against gas, and from Frontline Action on Coal. They both need support. Extinction Rebellion have been making displays of thousands of children's shoes to remind governments of the climate crisis We are compounding for our children if the recovery from the pandemic does not take bold steps to embed low emissions everywhere. I'll leave you with the words of a London doctor, Dr Deepa Shah. She said, we're living through one of those rare moments in history when everything can change. British people have shown throughout this crisis how deeply we value our health and well-being. There were scenes in front of Trafalgar Trafalgar Square and at The Hague of thousands of children's shoes showing that we are leaving our future generations with a terrible condition unless we change. As she said, we're living through one of those rare moments in history when everything can change. And now we'll go to Naomi Klein, who is um, commenting on The Intercept uh, she writes for The Intercept, and this was a, a small speech, small part of her speech on um, Democracy Now!, where she comments on something that Milton Friedman said. He said, only a crisis produces real change. When that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on ideas that are lying around. And he said, I believe our basic function is to develop alternatives to existing policies, to keep them alive, and available until the politically impossible becomes politically inevitable. And that could really be what we have done tonight. We've shown you many of the things 
that are now becoming politically inevitable and economically inevitable as the move to renewable energy has to be speeded up. So uh, here we have Naomi Klein, followed by a song called Failed State by David Ruggix. Years ago, I wrote a book called The Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism. It described a brutal and recurring tactic by right-wing governments. After a shocking event, a war, coup, terrorist attack, market crash, or natural disaster, they exploit the public's disorientation, suspend democracy, push through radical free market policies that enrich the 1% at the expense of the poor and middle class. But here is what my research has taught me. Shocks and crises don't always go the shock doctrine path. In fact, it's possible for crisis to catalyze a kind of evolutionary leap. Think of the 1930s when the Great Depression led to the New Deal. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. In the United States and elsewhere, governments began to weave a social safety net so that the next time there was a crash, there would be programs like Social Security to catch people. Look, we know what Trump's plan is. A pandemic shock doctrine featuring all the most dangerous ideas lying around, from privatizing social security to locking down borders to caging even more migrants. Hell, he might even try canceling elections. But the end of this story hasn't been written yet. It is an election year, and social movements and insurgent politicians are already mobilized. And like in the 1930s, we have a whole bunch of other ideas lying around. Do we believe that everybody should be entitled as a right to health care? Yeah! Not stop organizing and fighting until all unhoused folks who want shelter yeah. have shelter. Canceling student debt. It makes so much sense that uh, if you're sick that you should not be penalized where you don't have an income. Many of these ideas were dismissed as too radical just a week ago. Now they're starting to seem like the only reasonable path to get out of this crisis and prevent future ones. And with Washington suddenly in the giant stimulus business, this is precisely the time for the stimulus that many of us have been talking about for years. It's called the Green New Deal. Instead of rescuing the dirty industries of the last century, we should be boosting the clean ones that will lead us into safety in the coming century. If there is one thing history teaches us, it's that moments of shock are profoundly volatile. We either lose a whole lot of ground, get fleeced by elites and pay the price for decades, or we win progressive victories that seemed impossible just a few weeks earlier. This is no time to lose our nerve. The future will be determined by whoever is willing to fight harder for the ideas they have lying around.
a prison for trying to survive. When laws must be broken just to have place to stay. When the prisons pay the senators to look the other way. If you have to be a criminal to put food upon your plate, you know you're living in a failed Budget to make America great, you know you're living in a failed 